0: All right, well, I have a little confession that I need to, uh, that I need to make to you this morning, and uh, it's, it's public already, and so I'm just going to go ahead and, uh, and confess it, but I need to make a confession because the chapter we're going to be in in 1 Corinthians 5 is all about transparency, and so I need to confess to you that I, uh, that I opened up a Pinterest account last night. I actually kind of did it on accident. Some of you remember a few weeks ago when we were in our uh, family series that I kind of made fun of Pinterest, right? and uh, mocked it a little bit. And so last night, for whatever reason, I got done with all my studying. Football games were over. Uh, and and Diana and I, we talked about we're going to build a new home at some point here in the near future. And uh, we want it to be our last house, right? We don't want to die there and go see Jesus. I want my home in heaven to be the one after this one. So I thought, well, it'd be really great to have a place where we could just kind of put ideas. And so, um, and so I thought, well, Pinterest. Maybe that's what Pinterest is for, right? And so I went to Pinterest and... I just without thinking, it said, Do you want to log in with Facebook? And I went, Yeah, I'll log in with Facebook. That way I don't have to create an account. Don't do that, all right? All of a sudden, my phone starts blowing up. Okay, I won't name names. My phone starts blowing up. People are mocking me because I have now joined Pinterest. The chairman of our elder team texts me and calls me a Sally boy. Because I have a Pinterest account. Yeah, that's what kind of elders you have here at this church. And you voted on them as well. So, so I'm just going to confess to you in case you get an email because I understood that people were getting emails. Hey, your friend Brian Eisner's just opened up a Pinterest account. I did not know that was going to happen. I wanted to do this anonymously under the radar kind of a thing. But um, my name is Brian and I have a Pinterest account, all right? just want to confess. Conf- thank you. <laughs> thank you. David Amon's had one for a long time, and he tells me it's okay, it's not about your manhood, so I'm good with that. If David's good with it, I'm, I'm good with it uh, as well. Well, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to uh, be in a text this morning that I, I got done with the first service, and I just said, man... This is just a difficult text, and do people get it? And after being in our family series, Jerry and I have both talked about it. After being in our family series, it's where you know those are just, they're just really felt needs for all of us, right? Where we are in our relationships with our, with our kids and with our spouse and with our extended families. And it's just kind of really good to wrestle through some of those things because we deal with those on a daily basis. And then we get into 1 Corinthians, and it's about a messed up church. A really, really messed up church. And we think, well, that stuff's really not that practical, you know, but we need to study it and we need to. And so I I just want to confess to you right at the beginning here, it's a a hard passage. It's a a messy passage, but it's a passage that we definitely need uh, to understand. Now, we've been studying Paul's letter to this church at Corinth. And if you're here this morning and you are not a Christ follower, you, I believe, have picked a really good Sunday to be here. Because what Paul is doing is, man, he's going really hard after the Christians and basically letting those that are not Christ followers off the hook. So if you're not a Christ follower, you picked a great Sunday to be in church because you're going to feel really comfortable this morning, right? And and if you've ever been around Christians and you've been turned off by those that name the name of Jesus and and yet live their lives in a very different way, then you're going to relate to what Paul is frustrated with here in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. The church at Corinth was arguably one of the most dysfunctional churches of all time. And throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul is just simply an impassioned church planter that is seeking to address some specific problems in a young church that he really loves and he cares a lot about. There are people that are uh, picking out their favorite leaders They've got favorite teachers, don't particularly like other teachers. They're jealous of one another's gifts and, uh, and how those are used and why they didn't get particular gifts. And now in chapter 5, Paul confronts them because he's heard about a scandalous sexual relationship that is happening right within the walls of the church. They're a messed up people. One pastor that I read this week said, We could call a series in 1 Corinthians and you thought we were bad. And that's probably a good title, because this is a messed up church, yet a church that God loves. He sent his son to die for in order that uh, the message of the gospel might go forth. The church is his only means by which uh, to accomplish that, and yet we confess we are a messed up people. And so we're going to dive right into 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to make our way through and Hopefully, you, you get the gist of this text this morning when we're through. Let's, let's read in verse 1 of chapter 5. Paul writes, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of the kind that is not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Now, most Bible scholars believe that what this means here is that there is a man that's inside of the church, and he's having a sexual relationship, obviously an inappropriate relationship, with his stepmother. And she was most likely not a member of the church. Paul never addresses her specifically. Talks about expelling the man from the church, but not her. The verb tense in the phrase, has his father's wife, suggests that it's an ongoing relationship. It's not just a one-time thing. There's no hint of repentance. And that's important for you to understand right at the forefront here. And we are not talking about sin, which is repented of, sin which is forsaken, We're talking this morning to those of us who are habitually living in some area of sin. In fact, we're okay with everybody knowing what we're doing because we've somehow justified it. That's what we're talking about this morning. We're not talking about sin which is recognized and confessed and we move in a new direction. The word translated immorality, by the way, here is the Greek word porneia, from which we get our word, our English word, pornography, and it refers to any kind of illicit sexual activity. I think it's interesting that uh, in the Greek New Testament, that is the word that's most often used for sexual immorality, and it is broad as far as what it covers and what it pertains to. Basically, it's this, in case you wondered in the culture that we live in, sexual immorality is any sex outside of the confines of marriage, marriage being defined as between a man and a woman. That's what sexual immorality is. And in Scripture, in the Greek New Testament, there's no question about what that encompasses. It is all-encompassing we don't know the details about this particular affair. In fact, I'm pretty convinced that we don't want to know the details. What we do know is that people knew it both inside the church and outside the church. And here's what's really interesting. Even in a culture like Corinth, where the culture was so permissive where sex was just all over the place. We've already talked about the, uh, the, the temple prostitutes from the high city that would come down into the city. It was all tolerated. Even in that kind of an environment, Paul says that even those that don't name the name of Christ think this is disgusting what's happening within the church. It should have been unthinkable for Christ followers, and yet not only was it not unthinkable, it was actually tolerated. Look at verse 2. Paul says, And you were arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? That word mourn, by the way, gives us the idea of mourning as if for somebody that has died. We're not just sad, we're actually totally overwhelmed with grief. Shouldn't you be totally overwhelmed with grief? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul seemed to be less shocked with the immorality than he was by the church's reaction to it. They were arrogant, verse six says they were proud. It suggested that they even they even boasted about it. They might have been boasting about their open mindedness. Does that sound familiar to you? They might have been boasting about their forgiving spirit that they had that maybe he just you know he has urges in and he just can 't control them and after all, and we hear this used a lot after all that 's the way God made him, and so we just need to be tolerant of our friend. This really is not that difficult for us to. Uh, accept and believe and understand in the culture in which we live in, which is a a culture marked by tolerance. And it's one of the most celebrated virtues in our society, that everything's okay. Basically, I can do whatever I want to do, as long as it doesn't affect you or other people negatively, I can make that decision and you shouldn't judge me. Maybe they had actually marketed their church as some place where those in that sin-crazed, sexualized city could go to as, for, a, for a safe haven where sinners of every stripe could come and, and, and feel loved and accepted while continuing defiantly in their sin. You see why I say this is not my most favorite text to preach on? And it's really sad because we live in a culture that is like this. And because we live in a culture that is like that, it's easy for somebody like me or for one of our other pastors to, to think, well, I just don't want to, I don't want to handle that because I don't want people to misunderstand what I'm saying. We say it around here a lot. We're all a group of messed up people, right? If you've got any doubts about that, just ask somebody if you're messed up. They'll, they'll tell you you're messed up, right? You got, you got problems, And we say all the time around here that we want people to come in here to Northwest who are messed up people. This is a place, this is a hospital. People come into a hospital, why? Because they're sick. Because sometimes they come for an emergency situation, something's wrong with them. It's okay to come into a place like Northwest Community Church and recognize that you are a messed up person. Here's what we also say though, it's not okay to stay that way. There are churches that you can go to in our area that it's okay for you to come in a messed up person and it's okay for you to stay there for years as a messed up person and nobody will ever challenge you in any area of your life. That's not okay here at Northwest. We welcome you to come in as a messed up person. And the truth of the matter is that from time to time we're gonna all fall and we're going to mess up. But it's important for me to stress once again that Paul is not talking about somebody who has just simply tripped up. They've realized what they've done and now they've confessed it and they're moving on in a new direction. This is somebody that is habitually involved in sin. They claim to be a follower of Jesus and yet their life is saying something that's totally different. Verse 3. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, as if, and, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now, if you're paying attention, because you got a good night's sleep last night, okay, if you're paying attention, you read that and you go, well, that's pretty mean. That's pretty judgmental, Paul, that you would say that. Here's basically what he's saying. I'm not, I haven't been around, but I've heard all the details, I've verified the details, and so therefore, I know this guy is guilty. Now, in our culture, we would say, well, that's not good. Because I bet Paul was not in his small group. Paul did not have a relationship with him. Paul had not earned the right to be heard. And so, therefore, Paul should just kind of keep his opinion to himself. (laughs) Paul says, "Uh, I don't understand that philosophy or that strategy, what I know is that what I have heard has been verified as truth, and I've already pronounced judgment on this one who did this thing and who is causing harm to the cause of Jesus Christ. You see how I, what I mean? That's not really politically correct, is it? Paul, you shouldn't be doing that. You haven't earned the right to confront him. You don't even know him. How is he ever going to receive what you say? Paul said, I don't need to do that. All I need to know is that what he's doing is sinful. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there isn't a way in which we go to people. There's a way in which we can confront a person and they won't listen to us, they won't hear us. If we do it in a spirit of of arrogance, if we do it in a spirit of having a pompous attitude that we're better than them, they will never listen. But my point is this, that this gives you the right to be heard if you approach in a spirit of humility. Biblical principle is always to be applied regardless of being in a small group together or earning the right to be heard. Paul demonstrates that for us. Verse 4 says, When you assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. This is a message that preaches well, right? Deliver him to Satan. When's the last time you went to a church and a pastor got up before you started to sing a praise song and went, hey, just so you know, we're delivering John Doe up to Satan today. And you go, that's cool. All in favor, signify by saying, I, he is delivered to Satan, right? What Paul is saying, this word deliver here is a strong term. It's used of judicial sentencing. It means to pronounce that someone is guilty of the charge that has been made against them and as a result of that, this charge, delivering them over to Satan, is equal to excommunicating that professed believer from the fellowship that they enjoy in the church. It is to thrust them out into the realm of Satan, into the world's system. By the way, again, in our culture today, we look at this and we go, well, that's mean-spirited. That doesn't sound like that's, that's very friendly. Well, Paul was not the first one to talk about this process of discipline. In fact, if you have your Bibles, hold your finger there in 1 Corinthians 5 and go to Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, we oftentimes go down to verse 15 and we talk right away there without looking at the context. The verses 10 through 14, Jesus is giving the parable of the lost sheep. He's indicating his his nature and their very nature as well, which should be that if you have 100 sheep and 99 of them are just fine, but one seems to be wandering off as if to go off the edge of a cliff. You leave the 99 and you go for the one. The whole spirit of Matthew 18 is love and concern and making sure that we take care of one another and we rescue the one that is, that is, uh, that is, uh, that's hurting, that's in sin. So that's the context in which in verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector or as an unbeliever. Here is the process very, very simply. We're not going to take the time to go in depth to this particular passage this morning. The process is this. First of all, you go to that person alone. I've always thought a lot of what Peter said, where Peter said that love covers over a multitude of sins. That doesn't mean that love just goes, oh, hey, I just love you. It doesn't really matter what you do. I'm okay with that because I love you. You know, heart sign, smiley face, you know. That's not what it means. It means love tries to minimize the, the knowledge of sin. If we believe what we just, just saying, that, that God is holy, we don't want to simply blow sin up and have it exposed all over the place. That's not what we want to do. We want to, to keep it in as tight a, a, a circle as possible. And so Jesus says, go to him alone. If your brother or your sister, they hear you, then you've gained them. You've won them. If they don't, you take two or three people with you. Because maybe they won't listen to you, but maybe they'll listen to two or three other people. And, and if they don't do that, then you tell it to a larger group. Maybe you tell it to the church if it's widely known or in their circle of influence within the community of believers and you plead with them to repent. It wasn't too long ago that I sat in a a meeting with a group of leaders and we were going through a process like this and we were at this third step where we had to tell it to a larger group and one of the leaders said, what should we do if we see him? What should you do if you see him? You should plead with him to repent. That's the whole context of Scripture here, that we go after that person, we plead with them to repent and to come back into fellowship. And if they don't do that still, then you're to treat him as an unbeliever. What does that mean? You're dead to me. No, are unbelievers dead to us? Paul's going to talk about that here in just a few moments. No, it just means that he is not a follower of Jesus Christ. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, we interact with people differently. And what's the purpose? The whole purpose of this process of di- discipline is not punitive, but it's redemptive. We want to win our brother. We want to win our sister. Think about how a loving parent disciplines a child. Uh, the parent doesn't discipline simply to punish, but to change behavior so that there are not devastating, life-changing consequences as a result of sinful choices or conduct. That's the whole purpose of discipline. Discipline. We've made discipline out to be something that is, that is mean-spirited when actually quite the opposite is true. When I was a kid, my dad told me when he was disciplining me quite often, he was disciplining me because he loved me. Did anybody else's parents tell him that? Just after he whacked me on the rear end, he'd go, now I want you to know this hurts me worse than it hurts you. And I'm thinking, well fine, then you turn over and I'll, we'll, we'll see how, how, how you think it feels. But I remember that very well, and I have said that as a parent myself. The reason I'm doing what I'm doing is because I love you, because I care about you. That's why I discipline you. And then later on, there comes a point in life, and uh, at least one of my sons is there right now, where he recognizes that that discipline, that that structure that was placed around him was done so for a purpose, In order that he might develop a heart that is bent towards God, and he might live his life in a way that brings pleasure to God, and therefore brings satisfaction to him as well. That's the purpose of discipline. Yet, so often we look at discipline and we go, you're mean. I don't remember which one of our children it was. I think it was Justin, if I'm not mistaken, and when in doubt, it's Justin, probably, Justin, when he was a little boy, he was the one, Jordan would just, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, whatever he said, yes, sir, yes, sir, huh?" yes, yes sir, he could be as defiant as anything, but yes, sir, uh-huh, uh-huh, Justin, on the other hand, from a very little boy, would speak back to me, he's the one that would tell me from time to time, I remember when he was probably three or four years old, he got in trouble at church, and on the way home, I said, when we get home, we're going to have a talk, he knew that didn't mean we're just going to talk, and he said, Dad, can you have grace on me? We had talked about grace. I want grace. God, can we have mercy? Do mercy. Okay, he was the one that would talk back to me. And from time to time, I remember when we go to be disciplined, when he was very little, he would turn and he would say, you're mean. Right? Any of your kids ever done that? You're mean. And yet, if the truth of the matter is known, that's how we respond to people that, that get into what we believe is our business. You're mean. It's tragic that Jesus said just the opposite. And if you love somebody, you leave the 99 and you go after the one. In fact, the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 12:6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. That's what he does. And he chastens every son whom he receives. Verse 7, Paul said, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul compared tolerance for ongoing sin within the body of Christ to yeast or to leaven working its way through a whole batch of dough. Now if you're like me and you're a bread lover, you go, what's so bad about that? I mean, I I think that's an awesome thing, right? I love it when I come home and I see bread rising, because I know it's not going to be too long if the dude's going to be put in the oven, it's going to have a little uh, golden crust on the top of it, I'm going to slice it up, put butter on it, and that's awesome. I love what yeast does, right? Yeah, amen, that's a great place to say amen, that's right, say amen to the bread. In ancient times, though, yeast was very scarce. I didn't realize this until just this week when studying this passage. Leaven was the popular alternative, and leaven was actually just an old piece of dough that had begun to ferment. When added to a new batch of dough, it spread its fermentation throughout the whole loaf, making the bread rise. And the longer the process continued, the greater the danger that the dough would become spoiled and poisonous. And so when the dough became bad, it all needed to be thrown away, and the process needed to begin again. And what Paul is saying is, you put that little bit of yeast in and it will work its way throughout the whole bread and before too long, it's useless, it's poisonous, it's bad. Now Paul's Gentile audience might not have understood or picked up on all the connections that he was making to the unleavened bread of the Jewish Passover, but they did understand that Christ the Passover had been sacrificed for them. And so for the sake of the purity of the body... The leaven of immorality, malice, and wickedness had to be removed. God has done this great thing. He sent his son Jesus to die for sin, and that sin that he has died for now you are tolerating, and it is infiltrating every area of your influence in your church. Now, some of us may still not completely get the idea of a batch of dough becoming spoiled by a little bit of yeast, but most of us have had some experience with a friend or a family member with cancer. And, and, and we wouldn't want a doctor who said, it's just a little tumor, and, and it'll be a long time before it spreads to anything really important, and so we should just try to be a little more understanding of tumors, right? You'd look at that doctor and you'd say, I want, I don't I don't want anything to do with that doctor. That tumor needs to be removed so that it doesn't infiltrate every other area of my body. And that surgery might be painful, but it's necessary for the health of the body and for that malignancy to be removed. Paul continues in verse nine. He said, "I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed." or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Evidently, in a previous letter, Paul had written to them and told them that they shouldn't associate with immoral people, but now he's talking about a specific person, and he's saying, you shouldn't even eat dinner with this person, but leave it to the Corinthians to do just 100% the opposite way the people they should have been trying to influence with the message of the gospel, those in their community that needed to understand what it meant to have a relationship with Jesus, those were just the people that they were ignoring. And they were avoiding those who were, uh, who, who were in need of, of, of the gospel as if they had been afflicted with some terrible disease, and yet the people that were around them that were living their lives in a way that was contrary to who they say they are in Christ, those people felt very comfortable and warm in their culture, in their church. Paul clarifies uh, that command by saying not to associate with the sexually immoral people, that he didn't mean that they were to separate themselves from the world. Some of us are very proud that we've done just that. Some of you are very proud that your whole circle of influence is nothing but people that name the name of Jesus. You shouldn't be proud of that. Okay? Tweet that. You shouldn't be proud of that. If, if, that, if that's what you're proud of, that you don't defile yourself with people that are, that are in the world and people that don't know Jesus, that's very sad. Okay, You ought to have people in your life that don't know Jesus as their personal Savior and you are seeking to be an influence on them for the sake of the gospel. And yet the Corinthians had done just the opposite. They were proud of the fact that they didn't associate with those people, but come in our church, become our brother or our sister, and we will tolerate anything. Instead, Paul made it clear that we weren't even supposed to associate, that word gives the idea of to mix it up, to do life together, with anyone who calls himself a brother or a sister, but persists in a lifestyle of habitual sin. And just in case you were going, well, hey, I'm glad glad he's just talking about sexual immorality. I mean, I think that's nasty too, that whole incest thing that's going on there at the the beginning of the chapter. Hey, I'm I'm right there with him. Paul says, just in case that you think I'm just talking about sexual immorality, let me talk about a few other things as well. And he talks about not only the sexually immoral, but the greedy, someone who's driven to have what belongs to someone else and will do whatever it takes to get that. The swindler, someone who regularly cons people to make a buck, they'll lie, cheat, steal, they'll say whatever they need to say in order to make a sale so that they can get that dollar. The idolater, someone who worships someone or something other than God, including themselves. The revilers, this is the verbally abusive uh, person who rails against or attacks with malicious words either to their face or behind their back other people. It's the one who regularly gossips or seeks to destroy another person's character or reputation. Some of you go, all right, come on, that's not the same as the sexually immoral. Oh, yeah, it is. Oh, yeah, it is. Some of you have been in churches where we're all about making sure that our church doesn't have any, anybody in there that's practicing sexual immorality, but we let gossip and rumor and all of that, we let it go like a wildfire right through the church. Some of you have come from churches like that, that's why you're here, because you don't want to be part of that but we let that go. Now Paul says, I'm talking about all of this. If this goes on and it's habitual sin, you have to separate yourself from that. You have to remove that malignant tumor from the body in order that it doesn't destroy the entire body. Then lastly he ends up with drunkards. By the way, this isn't somebody that has a glass of wine or a beer. This is a drunkard, someone who regularly consumes alcohol to the point of intoxication. Paul says, if that's habitual, if that goes on and on and on, he cannot be part of the circle of faith. He's got to be removed, just like a cancerous tumor has to be removed from the body. These sins all have ultimately the same consequences. It's a fun message, isn't it? Verse 12 says, for What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Here's the bottom line. Paul is saying we have no business judging those who don't claim to be followers of Jesus, those outside the church. We shouldn't expect those who are unbelievers to behave like believers. Those who claim to be Christ followers, that's different. Here's the major problem for the church at Corinth, and I think it's the problem for many of us today. I've become increasingly concerned that as Christians, we're more, more, most often more passionate about fixing our secular society than we are about making sure that we are living what we say we believe. And by the way, We're going to have an opportunity in just uh, another, uh, what is it, another week or so, when we go to the polls and when we ought to vote and we ought to let our voice be heard. But let me tell you this I am not so much consumed with what our state house, our Senate, our our national house, Senate, the president, I'm not so much concerned about that ultimately as I am the purity of the body of Jesus Christ, his church. That's what we ought to be passionately consumed with. We ought to be passionately consumed with what happens here right within the brother and sisterhood. We ought to be consumed with that. We should be consumed about with our purity rather than seeking to get an unbelieving world, world to behave biblically. Think about that. Some of you watch TV at night and you're disgusted by the behavior of people that don't name the name of Jesus Christ. Why? They are acting consistent with who they aren't. What we ought to be disgusted with is those that are amongst us and from time to time even us who behave in a way which is inconsistent with who we are in Christ. When we behave like everyone else, when we don't behave consistently with who we are in Christ, we lose our ability to be able to influence. Before we hold others accountable, we have to make sure uh, that, uh, that we're actually living out the gospel in our own lives. It starts with us. Luke chapter 6, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't, don't notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take your, out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself don't see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. So many of us are so good at seeing the speck of dust that's in somebody else's eye. Why? Because we're so familiar with it because we're either guilty at the time or we've been guilty of the very same thing. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, don't be so consumed about the speck of dust in your brother or sister's eye when you got a big two by four hanging out of your head. Take the two by four out of your own head and then you will have the opportunity for influence. So what do we do with this passage? You've been asking yourself that question for 30 minutes. What do we do with this passage? A lot of churches, a lot of good evangelical churches, as they're going through a study in 1 Corinthians, they would go, let's skip that one. (laughs) Because that one's not really good. I mean, it starts out with, ah, the kid's in here. We don't want to, ah, just kind of skip over that one. Go to six. That's not an option. Even though we live in a culture that is not too keen on the idea of discipline. But we have to ask ourselves, for the cause of the life-changing message of the gospel, what would we not tolerate in the lives of those who claim to be followers of Jesus? Let me ask you, do you want to be in a place with a group of people who simply let you do whatever you want to do with no accountability? Or do you want to be in a place that is, yes, marked by grace, But there are people that love you enough to gently come alongside of you and challenge you with who you are in Christ. And so, therefore, what your life ought to look like if you're going to live according to who you are in Christ, according to biblical principle. I I can tell you over and over and over again, that's the kind of place I want to be. I want to be in a place of grace. But I don't want to be in a place that just tolerates my lifestyle, my habitual sin. Our challenge, as I've thought about it this week, is how do we remain a church that reaches out to people who need to know Jesus? In other words, we're a hospital where sick people are walking in while at the same time holding Christ followers to a biblical standard. I don't think it's one or the other. But I will tell you this, that if we do not live our lives, those of us that name the name of Christ, we're followers of Jesus Christ. If we don't behave in a way that is consistent about who we say we are in Christ, we will have little to no influence, and the influence that we do have will be negative. Is it really the loving thing just to simply uh, tolerate a person's sin? Or even to celebrate with them, because after all, that's the way God made them. We all struggle. God says no, even though our culture says yes. When we don't live what we say we believe, we cause those who observe our life to doubt the gospel. That we testify has changed our lives you know we are we're in a process right now where we're um, I didn't do this the first service but I really feel like this is where I want to close today where we've just purchased uh, 60 acres of land God has given us such an incredible opportunity uh, in this community a piece of land that I think people are going to look back on years and years from now and go how did you ever get that how how, how was that possible When that building is built on that land, I think people are going to go, how did that happen with that group of people? And we're going to go, God just did something. I said to you in our capital campaign back in the spring, and I'll say it to you again in this context, I don't give a rip about a building. Do you? I don't. And I've seen the pictures of what they're drawing, and it's beautiful. I don't care. I care about what takes place in that building For the sake of the gospel. And I will tell you this our community will never believe the truth about who Jesus is and the transformation that can take place in their life if you and I don't live a life that is consistent with this book. They don't care. They don't care what we say if our life preaches a different message. And I want so much for us to be a place of grace. And I I hope that we're becoming that. I hope those of you that are here and you're messed up right now, I maybe you're this person. Maybe you're not involved in sexual immorality. Maybe it's one of the other things that are mentioned here. Maybe it's something that Paul didn't even specifically address there. But you're running 100 miles an hour and you're running in a direction and you don't care what anybody else says, as long as they don't know or they don't say anything to you and you think you're having a good time, you're just going to run 100 miles an hour. I'm glad that you're here this morning if you're in that place, but... Know this, that eventually disastrous consequences come. There's a second group of people here, and you're not running hard in the wrong direction. You're trying to live your life according to biblical principle, except this very one that we're talking about this morning, because you bought into the idea that it is mean spirited if you challenge somebody about an area in their life. Can I say to you to stop that? Don't do that. That's not loving, that's not kind any more than it is when you observe when you're out in public a parent who doesn't discipline their children. You ever seen that? You ever gone into a restaurant where you just want to have a good meal? And some parents just believe in freedom? (laughs) And their kids are throwing food and you're going, what the heck? And I'm the guy that always gets up from the table and says, excuse me, could you please, you know, trying to enjoy my meal. You wouldn't tolerate that, and so don't tolerate it in the body of Christ. Be willing to say something we love other people we're willing to say something we're willing to speak up and then there's others of you here this morning and Paul isn't really talking to you this morning because you're not even a follower of Jesus yet and maybe some of you aren't a follower of Jesus because you've seen the way that some that name the name of Christ you've seen the way they behave and you go hey if that's what it looks like I don't need that I'm no worse than they are but yet you do need Jesus you can pay for your sin debt or you can trust in Christ's death on the cross to pay that sin debt Tough chapter, yeah. But at the end of the day, Paul says, I want the church to be pure. I want the message of the gospel to shine brightly. I want you to be consistent with who you are in Christ. Corinthians, Carians, Cariites. And as you do that, we will have an incredible influence for the cause of Christ in this community. Let's pray. Father, in a way, I wish that the Apostle Paul hadn't included this chapter in his letter because it's just messy, it's, it's just nasty in some ways even to think about the, the horrible, inappropriate relationship that was going on with this man and this woman in this church. And yet, God, I pray that we wouldn't miss the larger context for us, the larger application for us. God, we want to be pure. We want to have clean hands and pure hearts. God, I confess to you that so many times if I, if I really investigate my heart, my motives aren't right. Sometimes we have thoughts that are secret, but they're only secret to other people. They're not secret to, to you because while men look at the outward appearance, you look straight through to our hearts and you see them for what they really are. I pray that you would make me, I pray that you'd make other leaders at Northwest pure. I pray that we would run hard after God. We would pursue the things that really count and really matter, that we would live our lives according to biblical principle, no matter how contrary they may seem to our modern day culture. I pray that people will see the difference that you've made in our lives. God, I do pray for the one that's here this morning that's running hard in the other direction and they know they need to repent. I pray that today would be the day when they would just give up on the running where they'd get tired, pull off to the side and they'd get some help. God, I pray that we would be that kind of people where we're constantly spurring one another on to love and good works and holding each other accountable to a biblical standard so that the light of Jesus Christ may shine brightly through this community of faith that we call Northwest church. We pray these things in Jesus' name.